Tony, welcome to the show. I have to ask you the most fundamental question we've all been thinking about. Everybody discusses this. There are so many platforms. Your platform is one of them. Tony, what is consciousness? <laughs> consciousness from its functional level, it's our ability to experience, to see, to sense, to know. Even our experience of love, pain, joy, is something that we experience in consciousness. Oftentimes, it's easier to define something that is abstract with what happens when it's not there. So when you don't have consciousness, you cannot know, you cannot experience, you cannot feel. So it's a very subjective, personal assessment and experience of our environment, our sense of self, our past, present, and future. So it deals with memory, it deals with expectations, <clears throat> it deals with emotions and feelings, with sense of continuity or discontinuity, sense of self. And so there is that very special subjective element in it that makes it unique, that is not a mechanical uh, process that is happening uh, in a way that doesn't experience or doesn't feel or doesn't sense. And there is a higher consciousness kind of level, which is what usually we call meta-consciousness, which is the ability to be conscious of being conscious <laughs> and like that. So. Uh, to me, consciousness is a whole range of sensing feeling, and I extend it beyond the human consciousness to all kinds of sensing and feeling and detecting, which means, you know, whatever senses, detects, reacts to, is a part of consciousness. So consciousness is a huge range from a higher meta-consciousness and even higher levels of consciousness to uh, feelings, emotions, <clears throat> sensing things, but also to uh, meager, minor, very tiny levels of experiencing without being aware of the sense of self or the sense of being or the sense of present, past and future, but sensing even gravity, for example, I like to put it in the context of consciousness because, as you might know, <clears throat> my paradigm is consciousness is all there is, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> don't worry, we'll get there. <clears throat> <laughs> Look, Tony, the one thing I found fascinating is that um, <clears throat> culturally, we've all diverged. Many people have chosen certain paths, certain routes. You've done both. I mean, Western, Eastern culture, African culture, I mean, you, you've sort of combined a lot of different sort of faculties and brought them together as one. And I love this. In your book, you do the same thing. Um, I love the fact that you describe things as characters and, and you make it a lot more relatable to the reader. What I want to ask you, though, is how does one who, we have a very similar journey. I mean, you and I, medicine, um, we, we're both scientists who who've delved into philosophy and obviously love philosophy because that's why we do what we do. What, what, what has drawn you towards this and how do you think the scientific journey has impacted the, philosoph the philosophical journey and vice versa? 
I think it's the nature of life uh, that is um, even in my paradigm when we will get to it, which is to know more because consciousness is primary. So to know and experience and grow is the nature of life. And we are all looking in different directions based on our makeup, our needs, our vocations. So for me, it was <clears throat> the ultimate reality as a search for truth. Uh, this is a very philosophical question, of course, what is ultimate reality? But I thought I could find it in the physical reality because I started off feeling like everybody else or most people uh, that there is either dualism or there is physicalism that are more prominent. I would never have imagined that I could one day say there is idealism or there is consciousness or, you know, uh, the level or panpsychism, right. So I thought <clears throat> uh, ultimately in a very pragmatic, even almost uh, for practical purposes, um, try to understand what, what makes us do what we do. And so <clears throat> you keep going through a regression kind of problem. And so what is making biology work? What is making, uh, you know, then biology probably based on chemistry, chemistry on physics, physics, it's based on what is the reality underlying physics and then that would be leading ultimately from physics to chemistry to biology. We know this, of course, to physiology and then to a very complex nervous system, which seems to be the one that houses consciousness and that makes us able to make choices. And so why do we make these choices? Is there law and order in the universe or is it all chaotic? Uh, is it uh, happening by chance or there is a design? Uh, you know, the questions we all ask when we are searching for life and living and what it is all about. And I was faced with a special situation because I grew up in a context of a very organized, ideal feeling about reality, uh, about being, you know, the supreme fairness of the divine, the supreme justice of nature, everything has a meaning. And scientifically also, if there are laws, so everything should be working under laws. So if you know the, the first, uh, you know, conditions, you can tell how it will progress because everything follows laws. And so I was very deterministic on a sense, kind of looking at things from quite also an ideal perspective in the sense that life is just and fair. And then suddenly, when I finished my high school, I fell into a situation where there is a huge um, civil war. I grew up in Lebanon and that civil war between different factions who are having ideal ideas of, you know, surrender to their divine perception, to their divine God, to their, uh, they're killing each other uh, senselessly and um, you, you see that the humans make such complicated decisions. So I thought must be something wrong with their physiology because it's the physiology that creates the mind and the mind makes the decision. And so let me study the physiology. And besides in my family, there was a big tradition of doctors. You know, there are at one point, I counted 15 to 17 doctors and the extended uncles and cousins and, and nephews and all of that. So I went into medicine with that hope that I will understand more. And uh, I thought that, you know, medicine gives a lot, but it doesn't answer the ultimate questions. 
I started transcendental meditation at my first years of medical school. It helped me a lot to settle down and experience myself. So I thought from the mind, actually, we can do also something, not only from the molecular, biochemical, chemical level, but the mind can influence something. Now, whether the mind is itself a product of the biology or not, but you can start also from the mind and create some effect on the physiology. You know, we, we know about psychosomatic diseases and we know about, uh, you know, you can dream of something that doesn't exist and you can get a heart attack if the dream is a tiger jumping on you, you know. So the mind plays an important role. And so I started to feel like the mind is playing something more than I thought. So let's study psychiatry. So I went a little bit into psychiatry uh, I found that it's dealing with people who are really having their mind completely off, but it taught me a lot about psychosis, about dual personalities, about division uh, in the mind and like that. And um, I didn't feel like I'm ap approaching my goal very much. So that's how I went into science, feeling if I study the brain and then maybe I can discover something. So I studied brain and cognitive science in, in the US and did neurology. And still I found that it's a slow, long process and it's not giving the answers. Whereas my practice of uh, transcending and meditation was actually giving me something very profound. An inner feeling was broadening my awareness and improving my health and ability to concentrate and feel better. So I thought, why not study this more? And uh, so between science and the scientific approach, which is a great approach. So in science, because your question is about the influence of science, it has two values. One is the training of scientific thinking and the scientific uh, sequential analysis, and also the results, of course, the findings in science. So what I learned most and appreciated more in science is the scientific method. So you can use the scientific method to tell what is um, useful and functional and uh, creates real effects versus what is just, you know, theory and hopeful thinking or, uh, you know, wishful, wishful analysis and theory. And so I went into the study of the Eastern approaches uh, with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the Veda and the Vedanta, <clears throat> and discovered that there is a different way to look at things, which is that consciousness is actually could be primary. Now, the, the challenge was, we do have these two things, we do have the physical and the non-physical, let's call it consciousness and matter or consciousness and the physical reality. And again, this comes back to the same problem that you discuss often in your, you know, Descartes and dualism and then physicalism versus idealism and, uh, you know, all of that. And I tried to solve the, the conundrum uh, of reality. And I, I looked at it from every perspective. And I think I came to a conclusion that at least satisfies me. <laughs> And I hope it's convincing for others. <laughs> look, um, look, there's so much to touch on what you just said. Um, ideally, I think that the fact that you're able to fuse these different cultures together, firstly, is very difficult in today's time. And 
what I really want to know is prior to, to, to coming to the conclusions you've done, I mean, unbounded ocean of consciousness, you're obviously consciousness is everything that there is to you. Um, do you agree with that statement before we begin? Absolutely. Yeah. Consciousness is everything. Now, prior to coming to that decision, when you were in med school, when you were going through the scientific method of medicine, physicalism, reductionism, you and I have spoken on your podcast about all these different variations of what physicalist theories of consciousness go through. Um, at what point did that tilt? Um, when did that really shift for you? And why did that happen? It's a complex uh, combination of uh, experience, experiment, explanatory power, mm -hmm. logical understanding, and questions about unifying life and living, uh, meaning of existence, meaning of law, why are we here? So you take all of these together and you say, I want to find a solution to this. And you look at all the uh, proposed ideas. <clears throat> and if you don't find satisfaction in the answers, you start looking for uh, some other possible answer. Why not, you know, try? And it's a, it's a long path of research and discovery. Um, basically, it started with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the Vedantic approach, who emphasize that consciousness is primary. And that is the Eastern, most, mostly the Eastern kind of thinking and approach, Confucius, the Tao, but also in, you know, in, in different belief systems, um, Buddhism and, and different systems, but they are belief systems and they differ from one from the other in certain levels of interpretation. And so as a scientist, you can't just take a dogma and say, this is what is true. So I had to, uh, put them to the test. That's why I said the scientific method. Put them to the test, not only on a ra rational uh, level, don't like reason, but on the empirical level also, and ultimately on their explanatory power. And if they keep explanatory gaps, if they are coherent and cogent, and there were many things missing that I actually had to work on myself to bridge uh, the physical with the non-physical, because we can't just say everything is Maya, everything is an illusion, mm. and we're living in a hallucination. Of course, there are lots of hallucination. We're living in a shared dreams, and these terms we, we are familiar with from the great, uh, you know, uh, discussions you had with and I had with uh, top <laughs> top thinkers. Uh, so there is this reality, but there is an out, what looks like an outside reality and an inside reality. So one, I think, simplistic way to solve the problem, which is not a true solution, is to discard one or discard the other. And so you can say the physical doesn't exist at all, and you are happy because you solved the problem. Or you can say consciousness doesn't exist at all, and you get with, you know, Dennett and Frankish, or wonderful people, of course, they say it's an illusion, or it's an emerging quality. So by discarding uh, something, um, you can, if you have enough explanatory power to other things, 
you can come to some conclusion but you have to make these realities understandable in a framework that whatever your starting point is leads you to to uh, explaining the other aspect is which means if you start with physicalism consciousness becomes a heart problem and that is the big discussion whenever we think oh consciousness is a heart problem consciousness is a heart problem now if you start with idealism that consciousness is primary and that's all that there is you have a problem which is called physicalness how does the physical emerge you know so we can call it the heart problem of physicalness we have to solve that and so if i started there i had a problem and the problem is how to explain the physical mm. so when i came to a solution about the physical emerging from consciousness or appearing to emerge from consciousness and appearing as if it is different than consciousness then i felt at ease that i have a solution that can work mm. and look you describe it i mean three layers you've got characters in your book you discuss many different variations of how how to discuss this if you had to really just try and summarize it before we get into more detail um, how would you describe this i mean is it an idealist view is it a panpsychist view um, of course we have to eliminate at this point and no relation to eliminative materialism of course if we had to eliminate the physicalist view at at which range do you think you fall are you closer to the idealist range or the panpsychist because objective idealism and panpsychism are very similar i don't know if you want to actually discuss those differences as well on the way yeah we can of course um i would say i'm an extreme uh, sided idealist in that sense because consciousness is all there is is a strong statement mm. and therefore it means that you and i are consciousness that the table is consciousness that the moon is consciousness that everything is consciousness now that can sound outrageous if you just say oh okay it's a play in consciousness it's a dynamic of consciousness it's a holographic reality it's all of that um, but it's it kind of leaves some explanatory gaps that are very big so if you come to um, let's say panpsychism which says that everything has consciousness mm -hmm. um, i would say that what is it that has consciousness so and in my definition, everything is consciousness, not everything has consciousness. So having is owning something, but being different from it and being it is just simply an expression of it, being an expression of it. So panpsychists are often dualists, but there are also panpsychists who say that there are many uh, individual conscious units you know that suddenly emerge and you have panpsychics who can imagine them i would say like a fairy dust suddenly of a, a trillions of you know bits of consciousness and suddenly they have to combine to create higher consciousness but then you get what is called the combination problem how can some individual small 
consciousness becomes so complex with a palette of colors and shades of consciousness and feelings and emotions and realities and that is uh, this problem doesn't go away mm. now some would say then there are fields of consciousness different fields of consciousness and why they would say that uh, you know i've had a nice discussion with philip goff and who who said that when i asked him this question because he's a panpsychist he said uh, okay rather than <clears throat> fairy dust style conscious you know units let's call them fields and i said why fields rather than one field which is my starting point mm. and his objection was that there are different minds so you're happy i'm sad you go through this i go through that so how can the same one consciousness have these different experiences and he he the way he puts it is how can one mind have these different experiences if we are all one mind mm -hmm. and i said <clears throat> actually we're all one consciousness not one mind so i'm differentiating the mind from yeah. consciousness yeah. consciousness is more basic more fundamental and the mind is actually an emergent quality mm -hmm. uh, emerging from consciousness yet remaining consciousness, not separate from consciousness but remaining consciousness so these are some of the differences on the side of the idealist uh, panpsychist perspective. Mm. So when when you're talking about experience, of course, um, you're saying that look, everything fundamentally is conscious, right? Except it's the way the consciousness functions that dictates how we interpret it. For example, mind is a form of consciousness, except it's a different sort of experience altogether. Whereas two quarks or bosons interacting together is still a form of consciousness, yet still we interpret it as, as two physical objects sort of attracting to each other or whatever is going on physically. Is that where you're headed? Yes, we can head in this way. <clears throat> I think if we want a basic unit of construct starting to build the paradigm, if you like, I like to start with what I call a bit of consciousness, borrowing this bit from computer yes. science as if it's the smallest unit or whatever the unit of consciousness. It's like the max Planck, it's the Planck length of consciousness. Exactly, the yeah. Planck, yeah, the Planck layer, you know, because it, it becomes Planck le levels, you know, there is nothing in between, it's quantum, quantized. So I actually believe if everything is really ultimately quantized in terms of experience. So what is a bit of consciousness? If we talk about consciousness, we are saying, what is the nature of that thing that you're calling consciousness? What is its raison d'etre, its, um, its conatus, its whatever, horme, whatever, its, its essence, its, uh, you know, its reality? Well, its nature is to be conscious. That's very simple. That's why we call it consciousness. Otherwise, we can call it something else. So we call it consciousness because its nature is to be conscious. To be conscious from our own human experience, because we need some empirical reference, mm -hmm. to be conscious is to have three aspects, an observer, a process of observation, and an object being observed. Mm -hmm. So there are three flavors in consciousness. One is something that we say is an object, 
somebody who is being conscious or getting to know the object and then must be a connection between them because if they're not connected then you cannot have an experience of the object now although the three values are consciousness they are having different inherent qualities the observer is an innocent participant that actually is sitting there the process is getting the observer to project the awareness towards the object so it's a dynamic process and the object ends up being that thing which is dominating the process of being conscious because it hides in a way the subject and the process so when you look at the flower the flower takes over your awareness you become the flower i mean you can stop and say well i am you know tony looking at the flower but it's a reflection of another what i would call bit of consciousness so a bit of consciousness is an instant of awareness in which there is a subject <clears throat> a process and an object or a knower knowing and known these three values now everything that we do in our life <clears throat> is through bits of consciousness mm -hmm. everything absolutely everything we go from moment to moment to moment to moment of bits and bits and bits and bits of consciousness these bits of consciousness create modes of consciousness which means every time you have a bit of consciousness the observer changes its frame of reference and is now influenced by the previous bit when you see a flower you are not the same as before you saw the flower yes. now you're practically very much the same but a tiny little bit different when you listen to dr naidu's conferences and talks and podcasts you change a lot because you are awakened so those bits of consciousness make you change your mode of awareness yes now as you add bit on bit on bit which is really simple our experience in life we are modified mm -hmm. and our consciousness is modified and we start seeing from different perspectives mm -hmm. and the more we have perspectives the more we have complex aspects of what we can call consciousness that leads to what i call patterns and then within the patterns there are networks so to make a long story short i would say patterns are like anatomy i mean patterns are like um, yeah uh, anatomy and network are like physiology so you have a certain structure and then within that structure you can function in different ways mm -hmm. you can become a doctor or you can become a car driver you can become a father a friend you know that means you activate different aspects of that pattern which is within you and these are the different networks that make you see things from this perspective that perspective or the other perspective so ultimately our human consciousness i don't know if i'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself but our human consciousness is made out of very large bits of consciousness which are our molecules our atoms our elementary particles our cells our tissues our organs of course contributing plus some aspects which are more complex more organized and more structures like the nervous system 
that actually are contributing to the creation of what we call my human consciousness. So this doesn't actually differentiate much from the physicalist point of view. In fact, in this, I acknowledge the fact that the nervous system contributes to the complexity and to the quality of consciousness. I'm, a, you know, in the neurology field, what else can I do? Because I've seen patients having trauma and having issues and their consciousness does change. So we cannot ignore that. The only difference is what is the ultimate substance? Is it some energy or is it some, you know, physical thing? And my feeling and understanding is that it is actually a play in consciousness. Mm. But we see it differently. And this is where I join, you know, those who talk about hallucination, about, you know, Hoffman's idea that, uh, you know, what we see is very unlikely to be the ultimate truth. And this, this is really obvious because if you take red, for example, red doesn't exist out there. It's a frequency of light yeah. and our nervous system sees it like this. If you take yourself in dreaming, when you're dreaming, there is no tiger in the dream. I mean, in the dream is there, but uh, there is no real tiger in the waking state if you open the eyes. That's why we say, you know, the, the gun of the dream state cannot kill the tiger of the waking state. And also the gun of the waking state cannot kill the tiger of the dream state. You can sleep with a, with a nice gun next to you, but if in the dream the gun is not there, you can't kill the tiger. So what is this brain creating? It's obvious that, and you feel it's real during dream. And that's why, you know, <clears throat> you have Anil said and others who say that uh, it's a shared dream or it's a shared hallucination, you know, like that. Mm. Um, look, the, I, I completely agree. I mean, there's, there's so much, I mean, we discussed this when you spoke to me. Um, there, there's so many different theories at this point of consciousness. Um, you've got your idealist views, your panpsychist views, your reductionist views, eliminative materialistic views, illusionism. There's so many different variations of this thought um what i want to ask you is how would you describe the difference between a conscious experience between a quark and the conscious experience between a human it's huge the difference is huge and that's where actually it's a very important point to elaborate on because that's where people can get caught and they tell you absolutely ridiculous you know a stone is conscious come on because you think to project your anthropomorphic uh, ideas onto the stone so the stone has to be conscious like you are because what consciousness means is when the stone is left to fall it's gonna be afraid to fall it's gonna think it's gonna break it's gonna have a sense of self no the stone doesn't have a sense of self whatsoever doesn't have a sense of falling, doesn't analyze the situation, doesn't have a choice, doesn't have a memory, doesn't have any of these things. Yet it senses the gravitational field. And we are calling this simply, honestly, uh, genuinely, candidly, a very small, tiny, meager bit of consciousness. So the stone sensing gravity the sensing is also a piece of consciousness, mm. an aspect of consciousness. 
Now, I have, you know, an idea just to, to throw uh, uh, on, and that is... This, oh, by the way, by the way, Tony, before, sorry, sorry to disturb you. I usually don't try and interrupt, but no. uh, never try and cu cut a long story short. I know you mentioned that earlier. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm open ears and the listeners want to know. So don't, Wonderful. don't cut Wonderful. any long story short. <laughs> yeah. You know, to go back to uh, even Descartes, which who has a great insight, and that's why in all these discussions, Descartes keeps coming up because it's a nice reference, you know, and Descartes' demon and all that, and that all is an illusion and everything. So I don't know about existence. I don't know about reality. I don't know anything. Everything could be completely uh, a joke that is played on me, you know, but I know I'm there. I know I'm experiencing. You know, so when somebody says it's a hallucination, but who is hallucinating? <laughs> Somebody's hallucinating. And so, of course, many things can be a hallucination and they are just different ways of perceiving. So when you come back to the ultimate thing that one can be sure of, and there is really Descartes, I think is right, because when he said, I think therefore I am, which he meant I'm conscious, therefore I am, is the one thing that we are absolutely 100% sure about because without it, we cannot understand, we cannot talk, we cannot imagine, we cannot make mathematical formulas, we cannot understand the universe, we need that consciousness. So my point is, why do you want to deprive the universe and everything else that is existing from the one thing that you are sure is you know, this is something that requires question. It's a very, I think, quite important question. Yes. This is the one thing you know is a reference to existence. Yes. And then you say the stone exists, but it's not conscious. Mm. Why? Why are you depriving? You want to be anthropomorphic in the whole thing, but then when you come to other things, you, you separate. Mm. So. All you have to do is accept that consciousness is on a range from almost nothing to a very high level of consciousness. And we see this through the animal kingdom. We see that, you know, when the trees extend their roots and they cooperate with each other and they sense the water and they go to the water, when the sunflower turns towards the sun, it's not saying, oh my God, I'd like to have a nice stand today and I'm going to turn, I'll be so beautiful when the people come and look at me. It has no sense of that. It just has an automatic mechanism, which is also sensing, but that is consciousness. And that makes it turn to the sun. It's not a voluntary decision-making process. It's an automated, of course, automatic, very minimal level of sensing, but that also is consciousness. To, to be fair, Tony, I mean, you are from Lebanon, so you're lucky with the sun and the tanning situation. <laughs> I'm obviously Indian. Am I too tanned? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm saying we, we were fortunate in that regard. I mean, the, the right, amount right. of it helps. On that note, being from India, I mean, my ancestors obviously from India, uh, Tamil Nadu to be specific, um, your journey, you, you, you've traveled from east to west, west to east. I mean, you've... You've globetrotted at this point when it comes to your studies of consciousness and your studies of the Vedic culture 
and how it's transformed your life in terms of transcendent meditant transcendent sorry <laughs> transcendental meditation yes yeah, towards where you are today and the way you understand this topic uh, why do you think it's impacted you the way it has because you've got your skeptics let's take for example anil seth he's someone who talks about hallucinations as being consciousness obviously if you take an lsd trip you'll have a similar form of a of an altered state of consciousness and transcendental meditation is the same thing ideally you are in an altered state of consciousness now how does this change the way you interpret the reality we are fundamentally a part of and why do you think your journey has led you to this path based on this very in-depth understanding because i know your journey has been quite long and very in-depth well the, the problem with uh, posing this question not you but like anil and others dr set and others is that they're coming from a point of view of consciousness being somewhere and physical being somewhere yes. and if i change the physical therefore i change consciousness therefore physical is primary but because they are different yes. okay and one is creating the other or one is emerging from the other and in this way whereas uh, that's why i acknowledged from the discussion we had that indeed the complexity of the nervous system and its functioning including every molecule in it, every cell in it, every neuron that fires, every synapse, uh, you know, every neurotransmitter are contributing to the overall consciousness of the individual. There is no question about that. Now, they create their reality and Anil said is very strong in that in saying that what we perceive is actually more a creation in our physical construct of the aspects outside now if you take a drug it will it will change these chemicals and their interactions and actually your perception will be different there's no question that's not a problem i agree with this 100 percent the difference is that the essence the actual ultimate substance if you like between quotation mark but we don't want to use substance because it means as if we're becoming energy and physical value the actual ultimate let's call it substance if we accept that substance can all be also be something that is non-physical is consciousness it's the dynamics of consciousness playing within itself that creates the multitude of phenomena and phenomenal experience and appears to be in a certain way from a certain perspective you see then my sense of what reality is or what existence is has to be defined in the context of a bit of consciousness you can never say an object exists in and by itself as xyz it doesn't mean anything you have to say who is the observer under what condition the observation is happening and then you can define what is the observer experiencing that the observer calls an object mm -hmm. and whether the observer calls that object as something separate from oneself or unified with oneself and that takes us into different layers of consciousness and higher levels of consciousness where 
we reach what we call unity consciousness in which you actually realize that everything is myself but that requires a little bit more of explanation to get into so when you look at the human nervous system or you look at the human face or body from the perspective of eyes and your brain uh, one's brain that analyzes you know the nice dark beard the beautiful eyes and the nice guitar and all of that you are looking at one aspect of reality you're looking at one way of seeing this individual and that is constructed not only by the input that comes from the individual it's also by the workings of the actual dynamics of consciousness within you that you call your nervous system so that's one way of seeing things now if it was a geiger counter looking at uh, me or you it will see if there is uh, you know radioactive material or not and that's all it will see if it is an infra infrared camera it will see some halo and things around you know they are there it's the infrared that sees you know the heat of the body and will see you different if it's an x-ray machine looking at you you will have skeleton and stuff so what this means is to define the object in by itself is not is not a real definition you have to always say who is observing under what circumstances and then what is the object yeah. now it's very important to say that for us humans as a society we have to agree on things so we don't want to ask ourselves whether you know we are really like this or not that that's a philosophical question of course on the practical level we accept that we look like this we are like this and that's what our eyes shows us and it's very practical and we're able to to live and agree with each other and create a society based on these perceptions but if you go deeper than that and try to say but what are these things made of then you come to particles elementary particles quarks and leptons and fermions and bosons forces and attracting each other and ultimately fields and probably a unified field which is the landscape which has all possibilities within it and therefore looked at from a truly deeply physics perspective we are probabilities and non-local and, and 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 all of that uh, beyond the classical ultimately there is a field effect that creates those now that means we are deconstructing the physical really mm. see all that physical that has been seen and thought to be the beginning and end all of everything has been deconstructed by its own science by its own self by physics itself it has deconstructed physics and brought us to quantum fields and quantum mechanics to non-locality to uncertainty to you know uh, entanglement action at a distance and all of that and this doesn't mean that that is the only functional reality well all of these layers are true but from different perspectives so this is where we come to the importance of perspective 
whose perspective it is, and is there an ultimate perspective? Mm -hmm. And the ultimate perspective is what we're trying to discuss. It doesn't discard the reality from the other perspectives, which are very useful and functional uh, on, on a day-to-day -day living level. Mm. However, they have an impact. The, the idea has a very important impact on actually, ultimately, how do we solve our problems in the world? Do we solve them through physical means or through the consciousness approach? Mm -hmm. And that is where the ultimate uh, functionality, the ultimate importance and usefulness of having an understanding of ultimate reality. Because yes. if ultimate reality is a certain belief system that dictates the way things should be, you know, some, you know, divine entity sitting there and dictating from those perspectives what you should do and not do, you know, including, you know, whatever, you should fight for your God or you should uh, love your neighbor or you should... Uh, only believe in your own community and discard the others. Everybody else is unimportant. Only we are important and we are this and you are not this. Then it's a different way of approaching things. If you come from a physicalist point of view and you say everything is physical, you might end up with a Machiavellian view of life. Why should you not kill and do and throw things around and, and all of that? And then if it's physical that is important, all you need to do is accumulate the physical, destroy the other, and then you are important. But if you have a consciousness as primary, then you have to look for other solutions to the problems of war, of enlightenment, uh, you know, of environment, of conflict. You know, I, I threw a number of things like this for, for thinking and discussion, but it has a practical perspective. So we're not sitting here just to have a nice, uh, you know, a nice psychological or philosophical enjoyment for the mind. It has a very, very important practical implication. No, it, de it definitely does. I mean, you, what you're talking about is so sp specific to this podcast, because when I made it, it wasn't just about finding the solution to the mind-body problem, but also to understand how the solution will impact morality, spirituality, um, free will, how do we engage with this universe? Um, if it's fundamentally physical, how do we do it? If it's funda fundamentally mind, how do we do it? Now, based on your approach, how do you think it impacts the way we view certain things? Let's take, for example, let's start with free will, for example, and move on to morality and thereafter spirituality. So. We'll go from free will to morality to God. That's wonderful. It's beautiful. It might require a little bit of a summary of uh, how the physical comes, what appears to be physical comes from that. Because there's something I think the, those who are listening to us will be wondering, okay, you're telling us this, but you said you kind of bridge it, but how did you bridge it? Yes. So I'll make a Again, a long story, not too short, but... <laughs> uh, take as much time as you need. As so, you know, <laughs> let's get on a journey. Let's get on a journey and imagine ourselves that we are uh, playing within, beyond time and space in an absolute field of nothingness uh, existing as physical. 
So what is there? The paradigm presents a field of consciousness. So it's a field theory of consciousness, if you like. There is consciousness. You have to start somewhere. Now, this consciousness is not material and it's not within time and space. So there is no time, no space, not physical, not energy in any way, mm-hmm. yet consciousness. So we are starting with, we can say, almost like an axiom from somewhere. And why we are justified to start there? Because, again, consciousness is something that we know is the one thing that we know exists, as we discussed before. So then we extend that thinking to say, what if the ultimate reality is some kind of ultimate consciousness? Mm -hmm. Now, if that ultimate consciousness is beyond time, beyond space, is absolute, then it solves already one problem, which is the problem of beginning and end. Because beginning and end happen within the space and time configuration. If you don't have space and time, you cannot ask when it begins, when it starts. If it's not physical in any way, so it's nothing physical, so where did it come from? It doesn't have to come, there is nothing. It's, it's just consciousness. So that consciousness has a quality, and that is its nature to be conscious. And we defined a bit of consciousness, that means... To be conscious is to have an observer, a process, and an observed. So there are three flavors that arise from the one consciousness. It's still the same consciousness. So the observer is that big consciousness, the process is that big consciousness, and the object is that big consciousness. But there are flavors of three values. This is how we are going to solve the problem of one into many. Because we have two problems to solve. First, the emergence of multiplicity, and then the manifestation, the emergence of the physical reality. We are saying for now, let's leave the physical manifest reality to the side, and we are just playing with consciousness. Now, this consciousness reflecting on itself, why does it reflect on itself? Because it's its nature to be conscious. That's why we're calling it consciousness. So this we have, we're not adding really anything. We're just taking that first little thing and that's all. And actually we'll find in terms of, um, of uh, what's it called, the uh, Occam's, Occam's razor, yeah. that this is the simplest possible thing you can imagine because we're starting with nothing. What do you want simpler than that? <laughs> all we're saying it's consciousness. So, so this, you know, sim- simple, very simple. We're not going to add anything from there except analyzing what consciousness does. Mm. So consciousness reflects on itself. Now, it's conscious of itself from these three different perspectives, observer, process, and observed. And it allows itself to hide itself within itself because the object hides. And in the same way as we as humans can have imagination, it can imagine anything possible. So it can imagine any conscious unit, whether big or small. And therefore, from one to three to many, and the many are infinite in number, which means it can imagine being conscious from a small perspective, let's say the atom's perspective, It can imagine being conscious from a human perspective, 
can imagine to be conscious from a monkey's perspective, can imagine to be conscious from a divine perspective, and it, can, it is consciousness playing within itself, that's all. So far nothing has manifested except multiplicity has emerged within unity. So first step was to say that there are many from one. And those are on the level of totally imagination. They are not real entities. So it can also imagine unicorns, it can imagine Zeus and Apollo and Lakshmi and uh, Sarasvati and, and, you know, this and that and this angel, that real person, that unreal person can imagine planets. All of these are ways of being conscious that's all ways how many ways i can be conscious how many ways infinite number of ways i can hide my consciousness and look at things from such a small perspective that will be the consciousness of a stone a little more that will be a tree that will be a you know mango tree and then i'd like to look at it from an apple tree and i like to see so all of these are what we will call conscious units. So, so far we haven't created anything other than that. Mm -hmm. Now, what is again the nature of consciousness? Is to know itself. This is the nature to be conscious. What does it, it not know on that level of infinite explosion of possibilities? It does not know what it is like to actually be conscious from those limited perspectives. It imagines them. Yes. That's why even from the beginning you said, I take the example of an author who wants to write a book and they imagine things. First, they imagine characters. They can imagine a unicorn flying or a person, you know, dreaming. Uh, uh, or, or, I don't know, Thor and, you know, this God and that thing and this human being powerful and, you know, all the things you see in Marvel and etc. <laughs> and much more than that. Oh, and and they, <laughs> yeah, imagine, it's an imagination. So if us humans have such a fertile imagination, which means our consciousness can fathom things that don't actually exist in real life, but we fathom them, you can just extrapolate and say that infinite consciousness can imagine much more even, mm. can imagine much more. So, you know, the broader the consciousness of the author, the bigger the imagination and the creative power it is. So if it's an infinite consciousness, it can imagine absolutely an infinite number of possibilities. Mm. Now, they are all imagination. What is it like to actually know from those perspectives? What it is like to be in the shoes of Dr. Tevin Naidu and listen to a discussion with this person or that person and ask them questions? What it is actually like? It doesn't know. So that absolute whose nature is to know in every possible way it can know, wants to know and I say once, but it's a spontaneous process if you, you, you come to that. It's a part of its nature 
to know from all possible ways, mm. small and big. And that is how it explodes into what we see as our universe, in which all these knowing happen. Mm. So one of the qualities of the absolute pure consciousness is that it's able to put itself in the shoes of all these small perspectives and experience reality from those perspectives. So an atom will see things from its own perspective, a human will see things from its own perspective, a cat, a dog, an elephant, a tree will experience things from their perspective. And these are all the infinite ways in which consciousness can experience itself. Now, this is where the point comes about freedom. <clears throat> if it has to enforce on every one of those aspects a specific way of behaving, deciding, and experiencing, then it doesn't really learn what it is like to truly be that individual entity. It has to let it be itself. Yes. And so freedom becomes a necessary component of the process of self-knowing from small perspectives. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if it's a machine, you can predict everything from the beginning, so you don't learn anything. You want to know what it is like to be able there and to sit and say, what should I ask as a question? You know, should I let the speaker go this way or that way? What should I do? You know, and it is consciousness itself. So when, when you're doing this and you think it's my little me, yes. it's actually consciousness. It's actually that unbounded ocean playing the role and letting you be yourself in order to experience from that true full perspective of a limited person or car or individual or animal or whatever. Okay, so here comes the necessity almost for freedom in the process of knowledge. Okay, now where does it start? We know in our universe, it starts from the little bits of consciousness. Yes very tiny ones, and then they grow. So you will see that there is an evolution towards higher and higher consciousness. That is why we have the pyramid of existence and the pyramid of life from the inorganic to the organic, to the cells, to the animals and humans, and rising in humans to higher and higher consciousness. So what is the line of evolution that is driving life mm -hmm. and living, it is the growth in consciousness, to go back to the original unbounded ocean of consciousness. And how does it happen? By gathering more and more experience, which is the more you know from different perspectives, the more you know the wholeness. Mm -hmm. I take the common example used in India, which is the elephant in a box you know, that everybody practically knows. There is an elephant in the box and you make a hole and you look and you see 
the tail, you think, oh, the elephant is like a snake. You see this, the eye, oh, it's shining. The elephant is glassy. It's like a glass. And the more you punch holes, the more you start discovering the elephant. And then when you, re you remove the hiding, which is the object, we said the object hides. When you remove all the hiding, then the elephant appears in its wholeness. So whenever we have an experience and collect with something else in a specific way, we are making a bigger hole in the box to see more of the elephant. So actually, growth in consciousness is a process of unhiding rather than creating. So it's unhiding. First, it, consciousness hides itself completely into the particles and starts being unhidden. So it starts to being revealed. Yes. So there is a revelation. And so as we grow in experience and know the thing from this perspective, from that perspective, uh, know the thing, you know, having an experience at school, having experience at home, having experience in philosophy, having experience in love, having an experience in relationships, we actually grow in consciousness. We expand our complexity of structure and function that leads to higher and higher consciousness. So, so uh, sorry, could you continue? I was I'm, I'm going too long. It's nice to oh, hear from you. What I was going to say was, Tony, so where do you think it's headed? I mean, in terms of, let's, let's take, for example, teleology. Um, is, there, is there an endpoint? What's yeah. going to happen next? And let's bring in artificial intelligence into this before we go into perhaps spirituality and determinism, etc. Yeah, it's like, what is the purpose of it all? What, what is the meaning of all yeah. of that? Yeah. Meaning of all? The, the, there is a general purpose, and that is to know from all these different perspectives. So that is the origin of manifestation. But where does it go? It's kind of a different question. So first it starts, oh, let me know from all these perspectives. So I'll, I'll come into these little perspectives, and therefore what these appear to be to me and to you are different, different entities. That's why we see from different perspectives. But where does it go? It goes as evolution shows us. So in the sense, this is empirical. In the sense that, where does it go? It goes through higher and higher and higher consciousness. Until ultimately, we reach what is called enlightenment in the Eastern tradition, where the individual, what is enlightenment? Enlightenment then is to know the reality. What is to know the reality? Is to know that I am everything. That my essence is actually everything is to know what we're talking about, is to know that you and me are actually the same consciousness which is experiencing itself from Tony's perspective or Tevin's perspective. Mm -hmm. And it just enjoys that experience. It is getting to know more. But what are we doing? We are on a path to grow in consciousness yes. and to ultimately reach a point where we know I am everything. I am totality. And that is what actually many great seers and philosophers and religious teachers, you know, it bridges us to spirituality, that say that we are created in the image of God or the kingdom of heaven is within you. And, you know, uh, even, you know, in, in, in Islam, you know, I am closer to you than the jugular vein, it said in the Quran. 
And Imam Ali says that consider yourself to be an atom in which the whole universe folded itself. And in the Tao, you are the Tao, you are the whole thing, you are the reality. And Buddhism, that, you know, that ultimate reality, the oneness of everything that separates, you know, individuality and takes it to universality. So it's, there are all these enlightened people, of course, in the Veda, I am Veda, Aham, Aham Brahman, I am totality, I am wholeness, thou art wholeness, and the Vedantic approach. So from the spiritual side, there are luminaries who have seen this and expressed it, but due to time and interpretation, people don't see it. So there is already one bridge to that reality from the spiritual side. What is most interesting also, I feel, is that ultimately physics is moving there also. Why? Well, it broke down the molecules into atoms and the atoms into elementary particles and the particles into fields and the field into a unified field that says, yes, there is one field. I mean, of course, it's not fully determined, but there is superstring theory and M2 theory and, and all of that that actually go there and they all want that even if it's not fully elaborated it is all the scientists going to one field mm -hmm. which means what which means the same thing only they say maybe it's some physical thing some physical energy but but where does this energy come from mm -hmm. and many are saying it's just mathematical it's no more actually even physical you you transcend the physical on that level you go to mathematics and mathematics is a dynamic of consciousness, is consciousness at work. So from the spiritual side, ultimate subjectivity takes us there. From the physics side, it also takes us there. From the reason side, I find, you know, what I'm explaining and what I'm writing about makes complete sense. And I don't see explanatory gaps in it because it also takes us to ethics. We will see what is the foundation of do's and don'ts, ought and ought not, moral and immoral. And it's very simple in this paradigm. Mm. It's extremely simple. All that there is, is whatever makes you grow in consciousness is good, supportive, gives you greater fulfillment and happiness. Whatever makes you smaller in consciousness is bad, harmful, and makes you feel unhappy. What means growth of consciousness is expand the self, expand the sense of self. So killing, stealing, doing wrong to others, why they're, they're not so good? Well, they destroy your sense of self. Mm. Empathy, compassion, charity, embracing others, embracing the environment means you are growing yourself. Yourself is growing. So when consciousness grows, and we see this in the world, consciousness is growing. What happens when consciousness grows? You have more care for others, more care for, uh, for diversity, more care for the environment. Even the environment is part of ourselves. The air is part of ourselves. Yeah. That is an indication of rise in consciousness. So where is it all going? To the realization that I am everything. And you are everything, and everything is me, and everything is you. And that is a very simple, based, simple paradigm based on one very simple starting point.
that bridges all the other points. Mm. And, and I think the obstacle we have is not in the logic, but in the initial assumptions, not, not the obstacles for the paradigm, the obstacles for people to accept the paradigm is in the dogmatic assumption that everything is physical. Mm. See, we, we couldn't solve the planetary motion if we stayed with the dogmatic assumption that the Earth is the center of the universe. Yes. So all the logic shows it doesn't work. You have to break the dogma in order to accept a different belief. And it took 300 years with Copernicus and Galileo and then science to start accepting that, you know. 300 years to accept that the Earth is not the center of the universe. I mean, and then were, it took... And they yeah. were actively killed for, for portraying yeah. the... Yeah, exactly. Killed or imprisoned in the house and, 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 yeah, and discredited. And then we have Einstein that comes and says, even time and space, which are our most secure kind of sense of reality, they're relative. Mm. They're relative. You know, if you fly at, a, at the speed of light, time stops. What? Yeah, time stops. <laughs> and it stops for the electron or the photon when it actually travels. You know, that's why the electron won't be shifting in terms of its uh, momentum direction. Because when it flies very fast, it, there is no time to shift. Yes. So, you know, these are very profound things that show that uh, reality is different from what our senses experience. And to solve the hard problem of consciousness, we don't have to look very far. We just accept that our dogma of everything being physical could be wrong. Could be wrong. I mean, even Einstein, when well, I mean, he changed the paradigm of physics, Newtonian physics was completely changed. And then yet quantum physics completely baffled Einstein. I mean, spooky yeah. action at a distance was something he could not fathom. This was not yeah, exactly. happy about. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the obstacles for the final unification, you know, of um, you know, quantum relativity and all that, trying to, to build it, and super string theory, Susskind is really behind it uh, from Stanford and others also, uh, that are finding solutions to unify all the forces and matter fields and all that. Tell me, Tony, what do you think? Because, I mean, as an extreme idealist, um, Donald Hoffman takes such a physicalist approach to consciousness, yet his theory of conscious realism is so much an idealist theory. Um, do, do you think he managed to blend these two together? Or do you think that he's starting off at the wrong point by taking physics too seriously? I think his major contribution is um, that what we see is not what the reality is. Mm. And, and that he, you know, made... Um, formulation, algorithms, analysis, computer science, this and that, and that is the evolutionary power of, of things would not lead us to see things as they really are. And therefore we live in that uh, sense that uh, there is some kind of an illusion, some kind of uh, um, non-reality of the object. And I agree, of course, 100%, because 
it depends on our brain and it depends on on things and then jumping to the conclusion is a different thing so there is a gap in in between uh saying that all of this is not as it really is and it's true self and then just saying okay what does it do what does it have to do with consciousness and how does consciousness emerge yes uh, yeah it's not a full uh, full theory of, yes, there's, of there's, there's almost this you realize reality is not what it is but then you make the assumption that consciousness is fundamental but there's no necessary link between the two you yeah exactly make an assumption and move from there exactly mm -hmm. i i really feel that what was missing is that bridge yes. the explanatory gap to be filled because if you want to take the idea that consciousness is primary and everything is consciousness you have to explain to me how i'm sitting here and if you punch me or if you you know hit me i'll feel pain and i'll cry or i'll be angry with you and this table i'm sitting and we're seeing each other they are real they are real so how do we explain it it's just phenomena in consciousness yeah there is and they appear solid because it has to be really lived on its own level so they appear solid but we know they're not solid of course uh, you know between the atom and the nucleus and the electron there is space almost the distance between the sun and the and the planet earth you know so it's all emptiness it's all totally emptiness but for us from this perspective they are real and it's functional and it's good that we can function together and create a society until we realize that there is a field which is there and our human nervous system is capable of fathoming that that's why you have enlightened people that's why you have veda i have done research on the structure and function of the human physiology as compared to the ancient vedic text and their correlation is very interesting in that sense i mean i often i spoke to noam chomsky about this and i asked him about whether or not western physics mathematics and language whether it would have advanced whether it would have been better if we use sanskrit to discuss these topics because sanskrit obviously had far more vocabulary a lot more words terms ways of describing things for example the sun you could describe it in maybe 20 or more different ways. And whereas we just have sun or solar, yeah. perhaps maybe limited to about five words. Would that change the way we would gather knowledge today? And he, dis he disagreed. He said, no, he doesn't think so. But, uh, but I tend to think that that's a very fundamental fact about the fact that this linguistic limitation we have, uh, English particularly, limits us to discuss topics like consciousness because you're talking about such a deeply entwined things the unbounded ocean of consciousness there's so many terms qualia this qualitative experience a lot of people just can't grasp these topics and i think it's mostly because we just cannot understand the vocabulary behind it do you agree yeah, yeah absolutely the semantics are are very important between symbol and semantic uh, expression there is a big a big relationship that is fundamental uh, you know uh, you have that dichotomy of symbol and and name and form and and structure so in order to understand it one has to conceive it when you conceive it better you give it a name 
and then that creates a concept in your mind and uh, so language plays a very important role in understanding and communicating and in sharing i think one contribution from the paradigm to noam chansky's analysis of grammar and all that is that the fundamental bit of consciousness as we have seen which is knower knowing and known is the basis of subject verb and object so all the languages whatever they are be it sanskrit english french or whatever they all our human logic Yes. It's based on this. It's based on somebody doing something or somebody looking at something. So there is object, subject, and uh, the verb, you know, the predicate and then the object. And, and uh, this is based on the nature of reality, which is consciousness. And consciousness is these three values. And in Sanskrit, you know, it takes a bigger form. Uh, which is, you know, as Maharishi brought to light, actually, uh, it's called Rishi Devata Chandas. And so the Rishi is the seer, is the knower, the Devata is the process of knowing, and Chandas is actually the object of knowledge, the appearance of the object, the vibrations of it, the meter of it. And so uh, there is a very important uh, basis, even for grammar and language. Mm. Uh, do you think that uh, your study of Vedic culture, um, this this journey you went on in the East, uh, do you think it fundamentally changed the way you perceived it initially, the mind-body problem, or were you already skeptical about physicalism moving forward? It changed dramatically. It changed dramatically. I didn't know where to position myself. And why is it? And 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 would. Would you compare it to, how would you differentiate that sort of transcendental experience from someone who, let's say, you goes on a psilocybin trip? Um, and what would you say is the difference between those two types of experiences? It's the ultimate holistic effect. Uh, you know, you can have an effect that is momentary and that maybe creates addiction and damages your ability to perform and to be creative and to be socially effective. And you can have experience which is on the surface value similar, but much more holistic mm -hmm. and leads to better productivity. So ultimately, it's not just the experience. It's the wholeness of what it ends up doing to you. Yes. You know, if you have it, go, it moves the, beyond the current moment. Exactly. The current moment is going back to the self in a peaceful, natural way. The body gets cleaned up, cleared up from stresses because the mind settles down. The stresses are uh, gone and you come out creative, happy, productive in society. And this is scientifically researched. Mm. So we know that the effects are better behavior, better grades at school for the children, better health, less accidents of the road, uh, you know, blood pressure reduces, less uh, diseases, less heart disease, uh, survival rates much higher, rejuvenation of the physiology, it gets uh, younger biologically than the chronological age. And so all of this is a holistic effect that makes a difference. So it's not just a momentary experience. So other, you know, psychedelic or other drugs 
okay, fine, one can try if one wants to have a different experience and realize that if you play with the brain, your awareness changes and your universe changes. But if it makes you addicted, less productive, unhealthy, um, you know, withdrawn or dependent and, and all of that, it's, it's, then it's a difference. This is where the main difference lies. T tell me, Tony, um, how are we doing for time on your side? Are you okay with time? I'm, I'm enjoying very much. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Listen, listening to myself. <laughs> now I'm enjoying it very much, so I'm okay with time as well. I have to ask you, so when you moved from, from this scientific medical side, what were your religious beliefs? And, and moving into this transcendental meditation, um, the Indian culture, the Vedic culture, how did it change? I, I grew up in a Jesuit school. My family was Catholic. And so uh, I, I grew up very spiritual from the Christian perspective. And I loved the, you know, the ideals of love and compassion and sharing and all of that. And, uh, you know, I thought at that time that this was something much beyond me you know, to become a saint, I, I, I thought, I want to live, and, and it's beautiful to become a saint, but to become a saint, you have to kind of do penance and uh, leave the world and, and all of that. And so it wasn't my calling, mm. uh, but I had cherished uh, these values and um, wanted more because there were also many questions that were left to mystery, you know, the mystery of the Trinity of God and like that, the mystery of, uh, you know, this survival, the mystery of miracles, the mystery of this, the mystery of that. So this wasn't very satisfactory. And uh, the embracing of suffering as a necessity was also something that I was never really completely uh, comfortable with because why should suffering be a necessity if our nature is not to want to suffer? Mm -hmm. and, and so there was a contradiction there. And then the civil war broke and I saw things that I thought it's not, it's not taking us really where it should. There is a misunderstanding and the disconnect between the belief and the actual practice and the actual behavior. And so I found that transcending was such a simple cleaning process, removing stresses and gradually bringing you back to the self. In a sense, I felt shaking hands with the absolute within me. And I understood, you know, this saying that kingdom of heaven is within you. And also the teaching that silence is very important, that it's not just activity, but silence go back to the self, being at peace with oneself. And how to do it, that was the question. You know, if the mind is jumping right and left and, and, and all of that, how do you go to silence? How do you go to that self which is deep within you? And I found in transcendental meditation the technique to do it. And then it expanded my awareness uh, to the profound unity of life and questions that have been left to mystery and no answer, like it could actually answer from both a practical level, because there is a practical technology of consciousness. It's not just some philosophy that is very nice, 
and that is just on the intellectual level because on the intellectual level we discuss maybe maybe people agree but when they come out their stresses come out they'll be angry they'll forget what what one is saying and so between living something and thinking about something there is a gap and to live something one has to transform one's physiology to bring it back to its nature and that's what transcendental meditation does it raises consciousness it opens the awareness it activates the higher parts of the brain creates coherence between right and left front and back and so it shows that we are using more of our potential and it translates into better feeling feeling at peace with oneself you're no more uh, uh, let's call it a uh, football of situation and circumstances that when anything happens in the outside you're kicked like this and then something nice happens you kick this way something bad happens you kick that way and you're always being kicked around like a football like this of situations you are more settled and anchored in the self and so that gives that inner peace and strength and stability which is part of the empirical i think effect of this program and more than that the recent research and and many older research studies have shown the effect on society because if consciousness is all there is that means we're all consciousness and therefore there is not only individual personal consciousness but there is collective consciousness of a society you know we said that as we add elements we have more complex consciousness but a society is also a complex elements of individual humans which we can say they are like the neurons in the brain and they interact and particularly now with the internet and all that the synapses are getting closer and closer and the exchange of knowledge and communication so there is a very high collective consciousness yes and if that collective consciousness is stressed that leads to behavior and problems and worries and fear and what we have found is when a small number of people practice these techniques of meditation and the advanced techniques we have seen a reduction in crime even among people who don't practice the technique so there is a change in the collective consciousness and this has been repeated and done actually very systematically with very high significance level and published in peer-reviewed journals that show graphically that when the number of people practicing this technique rises you have decrease in accidents of the road decrease in crime you know better social indicators and when they are dismantled the numbers they go back uh, to the baseline or more I mean, I have to ask, as someone who does meditate myself, uh, I don't think I've reached the level of experience you have. What does it feel like, that transcendental state? I mean... Do you practice transcendental meditation? This, yeah, this qualitative, this qualia, we're always talking about this first-person subjective experience. When you're in that transcendental state, what is it like? Um... I was asking you, I was sorry I interrupted. Was it transcendental meditation that you practice? Ah, that's wonderful. What well, like for you? Or, uh, it, it's a moment where uh, there are no thoughts, there is no sound, no mantra, no thought, uh, no experience except of the self. So this is something we usually don't know in, in daily living 
where you go beyond the surface level of thinking towards the self and that is what we call transcending which means to go beyond to transcend mm -hmm. and in that state you have inner silence inner quietness inner peace if you do it correctly that's you know you'll get glimpses of that at the beginning and if you don't try to push it or try to make it happen and don't force it and allow you know to follow the technique as it is taught you do get to these moments of inner silence inner peace inner calm and feeling of expansion feeling of oneness with the universe you know there are different layers of different people have different experience of light and wholeness the main thing is when you come out of it you are more settled within and less disturbed by the by the changes in the outside even though you are very clear you are able to concentrate more and you're able to achieve more it's i think it's intriguing because I, I always, I think, well, I mean, you, you've obviously been in psychiatry, you know, neurology patients, you know, the types of experiences they have. Um, I think we discussed, I mean, how psychiatric patients don't tend to see illusions, especially if they're schizophrenic or psychotic um, visual illusions, they tend to interpret it as the way it is. And yet we get fooled. Uh, which begs the question, who's seeing reality for what it is? <laughs> do, you, do you find that those transcendental states are similar to those sort of psychotic states, and yet they're not necessarily classified as what people say crazy or, or strange, but rather just different states of mind that are different accesses to different states of consciousness, for example? Well... <clears throat> The thing is that physically, by physical analysis, meaning uh, analysis of, let's say, brainwave activity, analysis of heart rate, of skin resistance, uh, of all indicators of stress, cortisol, and all of that, you get the real answer to the difference. Yeah. Uh, and there, you know, in, in transcending, you have a very high coherence, Yes. And uh, even when you come out of it, your cortisol levels are less, your skin resistance is more, which means less stress and less sweating on, this, on the skin. Your heart rate is reduced, the blood pressure is, is uh, reduced. And when you compare to others in the environment, you're very sharp and you see things as they are. Uh, you know, as they are in the physical, in the physical world, as everybody agrees they are in a sense. Now, when you see a psychotic, they have stress reactions, they have heart rate increases, blood pressure, you know, the, there is dysfunctional uh, aspects uh, in the nervous system and all of that. So they're clearly physiologically, um, scientifically very, very different. And ultimately, the, the, you know, ability to function in between quotation marks, the reality is mm -hmm. very different is of course very different. I, I think that's one of the most uh, coherent and cogent responses I've had to that question. <laughs> it does meditation, so <laughs> very well put. And I do agree with you uh, completely. You. Tony, tell me if your theory of consciousness, I mean, consciousness is all that there is, this unbound ocean of consciousness. What do you think someone could tell you that could change your mind? on this topic 
Do, is there some sort of a physicalist perhaps or a panpsychist or, or some sort of a dualist who might come to you with an argument that might convince you otherwise? I don't want to be pretentious, but I haven't yet heard that argument really. Um, and it's going to be at the end of the day, <clears throat> a collection of um, facts and logical elements and explanatory things rather than a dogma uh, that just you have to accept it like that. Mm. So whatever explains more, whatever makes sense more, whatever unifies more, mm. because I feel this is really unifying and putting together under a very simple, simplest paradigm, both ontology and epistemology, but also ethics and freedom and determinism and, and all of that. We spoke about freedom, you know, it has more aspects to it the paradigm explains like why there is law and how could could things be orderly and still you have freedom so yeah. that is also explained i mean i don't know if you want to go into that but we should. i think because we actually miss that part of it yeah well the way it's solved is that freedom happens within the context of space and time which are experience of separation and you are free to do something and experience your freedom truly ontologically within space and time however whatever you do you will always get the result of your action in due space and time mm -hmm. so there is a background determinism that allows you to experience within space and time freedom so i'm free to plant a mango tree a mango seed mm -hmm. i put the mango seed i'm free it's my decision when the time comes and the tree grows i am determined to see a mango tree i cannot have a banana tree i cannot have an apple tree but in the meantime i decided to put uh, mango seed in the ground and i live through that now there is something is, is a little bit of a joke is that i say if your consciousness is broad when you go to the mango tree you can still eat apples <laughs> how is that you take the mangoes you go to the market you exchange them for apples this is because your consciousness is not limited to the mango tree <laughs> so you still have the freedom to change things, but there is a determinism. Mm -hmm. So determinism of today is due to the decision and the freedom of yesterday. Mm -hmm. Within time and space, there is that sense of freedom, which is real and which allows us to act. But ultimately, we always have to reap the consequences of our actions because of also the paradigm explains why this is so and why there is action and reaction, but this would take us again to a longer kind of discussion. <laughs> uh, look, I, 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 get, I completely get where you're coming from. I've, I mean, I've, I've read your book, I've listened to certain chats where you've discussed this, and, and, and I kind of get an idea of where you're going with it. But what I really want to ask you, Tony, is if you had to, and I'll ask this to almost all the guests I have, if you had to give me sort of your Mount Rushmore of philosophers, scientists, perhaps f 
just at least five people that you would highly recommend the listeners, the viewers, and and who really shaped the way you think today? Who would those people be and why? I, I would say number one is Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Of course. Really. I mean, he's my teacher and I learned basically all I know from him. I developed, of course, the ideas a little more in a framework, but um, his writing, for example, on the Bhagavad Gita, which is uh, a spiritual book, but very practical, very uh, scientifically framed book about enlightenment, spirituality, and growth. And that is, that is absolutely wonderful and, and profound. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, if you want to expand more in direction, you could read Leibniz and Spinoza and, you know, Plato, of course, and you, you know, he has not written a lot, but he's also on the idealist. One of the big idealists is Parmenides of the ancient times. Uh, if you want to read more on Brahma Sutras, the ancient uh, Vedantic uh, writings, uh, and Confucius and the Tao, and all the uh, great uh, teachings are actually, uh, if you know how to interpret them from this paradigm, uh, you will see the depths of their interconnection and their and their relationship. Now, in modern times, there are very beautiful writings and, and thinkers uh, in philosophy that addressed all of these topics from different perspectives. Also, Do, as if if you had to give to all the people who who read your book, who look at your work, listen to it, perhaps watch it. If there's anything on your mind that you've been always waiting to sort of express, you know, certain people have certain counter arguments, certain people have said certain things, then what would those things be? What would you, what would your final words be to anyone who wants to know a little bit more about your mind and the way it works? Go beyond the surface values and transcend to the inner self and find yourself to be everything and understand that consciousness is all there is. And it is the basis of all that we can do. If you want to improve the environment, we have to change the consciousness of those who decide about the environment. If we want to avoid war, we have to change the consciousness of the collectivity that influences the leaders to make decisions. And therefore we need to transform consciousness. Consciousness is the basis and is the ultimate solution, not the physical outer values. Consciousness expresses itself into physical and outer values, and they are real and they are aspects of consciousness, but they are phenomena in consciousness. And if you want to move the kite in the right direction, you have to have the mastery of the little movement. So you can do less and accomplish more by raising your consciousness. Practice transcendental meditation and advanced techniques, and you will find life blossoming in all directions. Tony, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, before we go, I mean, this just came to me now. That was meant to be the last question, but I wanted to touch on this earlier and I never got the chance. From your theory of consciousness, you're able to discuss love, happiness, uh, longing, um, belonging. Um, how, how are you able to sort of transcend these ideas 
into these cognitive facilities because obviously intelligence cognition has nothing to do with consciousness but you're able to sort of link these somehow um you want to end on that note you can give us your final and in the paradigm we discussed as the bit of consciousness that is the knower the process of knowing and the known it is the process of knowing that links the subject to the object the object is itself a knower but from its own perspective so when we look at ourselves at each other for you i am the object for me you are the object and there is something that connects us mm. that which connects us in its ultimate form is love that is the unifying force of life so within the paradigm is that infinite power of connecting so whatever connecting is in this most beautiful form is love and so love transcends differences love unifies and that's what this bit of consciousness is about it's about unifying the object with the subject but if you unify from a true deep level you feel one with the other you feel one with everything and that is how we can from a feeling level call it love from a cognitive level we can call it an experience of oneness an experience of unity so uh, it there is no true contradiction and it's it's really the binding force that unifies uh, even the farthest ends of the universe and that is that puts everything together and ultimately ultimate unity is ultimate love because ultimate connection is ultimate putting together uh, i think that's an absolutely amazing way to end tony i just want to say thank you so much for all the work you're doing you continue to do and that you've done in the past you've contributed to this field tremendously um not just from the west but from the east as well you've managed to combine different fields together and and it's culminated into a theory of consciousness that i think a lot of people are going to find very provocative very very influential and i just want to say thanks from my side thanks to you thanks for seeing this and appreciating it your your um, mind and body and connection is so profound and you've had so many great people thank you for honoring me to have me with you in this uh, podcast it's the pleasure's been all mine uh, continue the work you're doing um we obviously have very similar podcasts so i would love for everyone to check out tony's podcast um and just to read his book the unbounded ocean of consciousness and i want everyone to just i'll i'll leave the links below i want everyone to read it obviously i'll put a link to your channel tony i think i think what we're doing is very similar and i think it's important that this niche sort of grows together um whether or not people agree or disagree with theories does not matter uh, the fact exactly. is we're discussing these topics and i i think you feel the same way absolutely i enjoyed very much having a frankish <laughs> who thinks completely differently and and others also so we are on the same line i mean we it's really wonderful thank you for having I me again look off the other day i just just a few not too long ago just a few days ago i mean similar similar experience i mean i've seen yours um we've had multiple similar guests and i love the fact that we get to do this together and that we're in this together so thank you for being a colleague in the field um my journey has been very similar to yours i've got a long way to go and a lot to learn 
and uh, I think uh, it's it's great to have people like you around to look up to and and that's aspire. wonderful. You've done a lot in a short time span. I, I wish I can live to see you at my age. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care. It's been All a the best. pleasure. Take care and, and keep well. Thank you, you too. Bye.